I've arrived for my first podcast type interview with Brian Letwin. Hope it goes well. Let's uh, check it out. Hello and welcome everyone to the very first episode of this, I suppose it's the Design Exchange podcast. Uh, you know, I haven't actually picked a name yet, but I figured who better to do this with than Brian Letwin, one of the founders of a Cornerstone Media website here in Vietnam, Saigonier.com, or just Saigonier. They've also recently expanded into Hanoi with a website called Urbanist Hanoi. Mm -hmm. Brian, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good, trying to stay dry. Luckily, it hasn't rained yet. Yeah, I would have loved to interview yesterday. Uh, but like every day this week, it just has poured cats and dogs, and I've decided to just kind of stay where I was until the weather let up. Yeah, I ended up uh, walking for around 45 minutes to find a car to go home. <laughs> so I walked from the office, which is like straight downtown, tried to book Grab, be five or six of the other ride sharing or whatever, ride economy things, and uh, ended up just walking for 30 minutes and got a taxi at the top of like uh, Winhukan. Did you get wet? I got in just between the storms, the downpours. And during the walking, I was all right. But then by the time I got in the car, it started raining. So, oh, so, so you're saying yeah. you couldn't get into the car because they were in so high demand. Exactly. So Grab was usually, it's usually like 70 to 80K for me to get home. Yesterday was like 370. And I was just like, no, there's no circumstances under which I will buy that. Grab, uh, for those who may not know, is a ride sharing application like Uber. It actually bought Uber. And in Southeast Asia, they they bought Uber or merged with them or something and then just rebranded completely as Grab. Yeah. Uh, but eventually I got home. So that's the good news. But it took me like an hour. It was usually 20, 25 minutes was an hour, hour and a half. So um, that sucks. But at least I had my daughter to greet me when I got home and that makes things better. Yeah. So when we first met, you were not a dad. No. When we first met, I don't even know. I just probably just gotten married at that point. That was, we're going on our seventh anniversary now. So. And how, how old is your child? Just about to be 11 months, 10 months. Her birthday is August 1st. Math, you know. In what ways has having a baby changed your work? I would say the biggest thing is time management. I like to avoid rush hour anyway. Uh, and I kind of make my own schedule because I never, I'm always working. If I'm tra traveling, I'm still on Slack on my phone and stuff like that. So now I find myself trying to get home like by five. Um, and even if I need to work a little bit from home, it's better to do it there in the presence of a baby than uh, doing it in the office. Probably less productive and takes longer to do the same task, but worth it. So I've just been trying to put emphasis on spending as much time with her as possible because a lot of the feedback I get from fathers and mothers a little bit farther down the road is, uh, you know, this is kind of the golden time, especially before she starts walking, which we're probably like three, two or three weeks away from. Other than that, like schedule changes, yes, yeah, certainly I'm going home more often uh, and like going out to less client events and things like that. I have a larger biz dev team than I did about a year ago. So it also allows me to send more people kind of by proxy to, to different things. Money is a bigger pressure, probably. I don't think it's really changed anything specific in what I do with my work. I already put a lot of pressure on myself without a kid anyway. But there's always that extra push at the back of your head um, that it's... Yeah, I mean, paying rent's great, but then like eventually you're gonna have to pay for school and food for this child, this this alien thing. How long have you been doing Saigonier specifically? Saigonier was launched in April 2013. Um, and then for the first two years, both Alberto, my co-founder, and myself had day jobs. But two years after launching, we decided to take the risk 
quit the day jobs, focus full-time on Cygenia. So that was in 2000 and late 2014, around there. So a year and a half after we launched. What's been the scaling process for you, especially in terms of um, employees? When we started off, it was a pretty good pairing because I had a background in digital marketing so and, and have a liberal arts degree, so I can write sentences pretty okay. So for the first two, three years, I was pretty much writing or editing, if it was freelance stuff, every single piece of content that went on the website. And then Alberto has a background in tech, so anything you know IT-related would go through him. Uh, so for having a team of two people for an endeavor like Saigoneer, it was definitely the right match of skill sets. If we were one of us was weaker on one of the other points, it would have been probably a problem. And then yeah, you just keep your head down and just plug away. I mean, there were I remember going to New York the first for the first time after moving to Vietnam. So it'd been like three years since I'd been home, and I, with my wife who before right before we got married or right after we got married, and I had to work like six seven hours a day because if I wasn't doing articles, then you know for a website like Saigoneer where we publish five to six articles a day. You can't not. You can't just like skip a day and, and call it good. Um, that consistency is part of the core offering and part of the core product that we have is that expectation that when people go to the website in the morning or in the afternoon that the content's changing consistently. But at that point, I was having like panic attacks, like waking up with like bated breath and stuff. Um, just the pressure of of having a regular job plus that um, and the time change and all of the other stuff just contributing to like a massive amount of pressure. Luckily, <laughs> we made it through that period. Um, and then in 2015-ish, uh, we hired our first full-time editorial like, editor-in-chief. So somebody above me who had a better, uh, had more experience with, with writing and with you know, negotiating and editorial schedule and you know, making sure everything was up to snuff. I mean, when she started, she was like, okay, I'm like, here are the articles for today. And she's like, all right, what about tomorrow? And I was like, tomorrow, we figure that out. And she was just like coming from a print monthly magazine background, like flipped out mentally, like not like angrily. She's just like, how don't you know what you're going to write about tomorrow? It's just like, welcome to this show, man. You know, this is how we do it. So she luckily put in a formal editorial process. She created a style guide. She did all these like really basic process stuff, which was missing because we're just trying to make it day to day with the business. So we weren't really thinking super far ahead uh, at that point. And then, so we hired her, which then allowed me to move over more to like business development, which was an important step as well, um, because we had tried some other salespeople and it just didn't work out especially in Saigon, sales is a business development. It's a really hard thing to do. It's really connection-based. There are very few people who do it well. And as a CEO of the company, especially in a place like this, having that just that title on the name card gets, like, goes a pretty long way with upper management for brands that we work with and stuff like that. They just want to know they're interfacing with the decision maker. I hear that all the time. I need to talk to the decision maker. I need to talk to the decision maker. And then we just slowly, like as revenue increased uh, year by year, pretty much doubled year on year for the last four or five years, starting at a very small number. So take that into <laughs> account when we talk about doubling. Um, but in 2017, uh, we got a pre-seed round from 500 startups, uh, which was for about $50,000. And that allowed us to build out our team even further. So we doubled or tripled our writing staff, uh, hired full-time video folks, uh, added another photographer, um, did more like kind of branding stuff, like put together, like for the first time ever, like a super nice tech gift box for clients that had like all this like really thoughtful stuff in it, which, you know, helped to, I'm sure down the road, increase sales at some point. And also allowed us to expand to Hanoi, as you mentioned before. And we also launched even before Hanoi and Hanoi was launched right before, right after Tet last year. Uh, we launched a Korean version of Saigoneer because there are 80,000 Koreans living in Saigon, making them the biggest expat group 
I mean, if you aggregate all the Western expats, it's still less. So, so it's not an urbanist soul. It's Saigonier, but localized in... In Korean language. Exactly. Do you have unique content for that site, or is it mostly localized of the English site? You could say we're translating stuff from the English site uh, into Korean, but unlike translating from English to French or English to Spanish or a Romance language, in translating from English to Korean, tr- it's more of a full rewrite uh, because uh, they just, just like Japanese, also write and read in very, very different ways. Tone of voice is very different. The style is super different. So we had to hire actual Korean folks, uh, Korean writers and translators to, to help run this. So we didn't hire like Vietnamese who studied Korean or expats who knew Korean. We needed to go to the source. Uh, and the feedback has been really good when I talk to Koreans or when our clients buy an article with us and then show it to their Korean friends to be like, is this any good, the writing? And they're like, yeah, it's legit. So we've been really lucky to have uh, good Korean staff to help us with that that language transition. What was the inspiration to do the Korean version of the website? Our product is content. It's expensive to make content. It's cheaper to translate it or to rewrite. In talking with clients of mine and just knowing, you know, just the market pretty well, uh, the question was to do Korean or Japanese. And I, when I talked to clients and did just background research, I could see, A, that the number of Koreans were like quadruple or quintuple the number of Japanese in Saigon. Uh, and then directly from clients, I remember one of them told me, you know, Japanese will come in, spend a bunch of money and leave after like an hour. And for Koreans, they come in, spend a bunch of money and they never, they don't leave. They stay for like five, six, seven, eight hours doing table service and stuff like that. Um, so getting similar feedback, not quite in the same nightlife paradigm as the one I just mentioned, but like from F&B outlets and stuff, uh, Koreans are a very high spending user group, uh, but very, very difficult to access because of linguistics. One, two, there are not a lot of Korean language publications in Saigon serving the community here. Uh, and three, you know, Koreans here just didn't have that access to content in Korean. So therefore, they kind of stay in their bubbles in District 7 and District 2 and a couple other places in the city. But uh, part of the, the goal here was to kind of bridge that gap between the Korean community and you know, District 1, District 3, these kind of more far-flung districts from District 7, um, and, and get them to interact with our clients, mostly like restaurants and, uh, and different service providers. Is there a core type of content that Saigonier publishes? Like, what's your niche? So when we started Saigonier, as I mentioned, I was doing everything pretty much on the editorial side, um, which meant that the kind of content types, if we're going to try to push as we were back then, like three to five articles a day had to be pretty quick to make. Um, so back then we relied more on kind of the news aggregation model, which was, I would go through all the Vietnamese English language websites and the Vietnamese ones using Google Translate. Um, and they would publish collectively, let's say like 500 articles a day. Um, and then going through them, knowing that we were targeting a more millennial, uh, educated, and sophisticated reader group that, you know, probably 95% of those articles were irrelevant to them. So the value that we had in the beginning was I would cherry pick, I'd go through all these news sources. So instead of the reader having to go to all these websites or figure out how to translate something from Vietnamese, uh, we would rewrite in our own style, um, that newsier content, try to put a little bit extra context in there, a lot more backlinks and things like that. Um, and that was pretty cheap and easy content to make over the, the years. And as we've been able to put more resources into editorial, we've been investing uh, into the content itself by virtue of hiring more people who have the proper skill set. So now we are 
way more focused on lifestyle content. So that's like eat and drink, arts, culture, travel, because that's where there's more value, we feel, on the editorial side. I mean, a lot of the stuff we write, we have more Vietnamese readers on Saigonier than expat readers, about 42% Vietnamese and about 36% expats. Uh, and that is a function, partially at least, of we're producing content that is not available in Vietnamese on any website. So we're attracting the Vietnamese readership just by virtue of having content that is only on Saigonier or only on Urbanist Hanoi. Um, and then for the stuff that you can find in other places, we try to, if we're going to write about it, we're going to try to spin it in a way that gives you at least a different perspective on a certain story or a certain event. Um, obviously non-political or anything like that, but maybe something related to music or art or food. Since you guys started this, a lot of websites have come and gone. Mm. I guess I could say, like, any arena doesn't seem to be around anymore. That's, you know, was them leaving, did that open up a lifestyle and entertainment market share for you? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we're, we're always looking for holes in the market to fill. And certainly when other publications go out of business or cease to exist for whatever reason, that hole is something that opens up very quickly. And, and it is also one that has a, I mean, probably more like a window than a hole because it closes eventually. Um, so st strategically, it was similar to Urbanist Hanoi. Um, monetarily, Urbanist Hanoi, Hanoi in general is, is a much tougher market than Saigon for, for ad sales or for any kind of sales in general. So our expectation for revenue for Hanoi is very different than it is for Saigon, even at the same like time period in, in, in their existence. Um, so for Hanoi, it was a strategic play to something. We're going to make money off it. We're making money off of it. But it was also like there was nobody doing what we're doing in Hanoi. So we wanted to make sure we got in there before somebody else did something similar and then potentially could get in and get a foothold in Saigon. And then by virtue of that, had more competition. For the specific instance you just mentioned, yes, when any arena closed, we talked with a number of their clients. Uh, the biggest one probably is like Lush, actually. Uh, we went in and just as, you know, it was a good fit for us anyway, but um, also good for, for revenue things as well to just have a new stream of that. So event photography and event video work and things like that. Um, and then we give these kind of nightlife venues exposure on Saigonier as well. We place like their event photos or their videos on the homepage for a certain period of time. And then even after they come off the homepage, they're always accessible via SEO. We don't take links off of the website. Um, for, for client work. Um, so it has that longer term value. The other kind of websites or publications that existed when we started Saigonier, so Any Arena was the, probably the biggest one digital, they never did print, but they were also monetarily mostly an event coverage uh, website. That's where they made a lot of their revenue, I imagine. And then you had some print publications in English uh, like that were very expat focused, like The Word, uh, Asia Life. I think those are the two main ones when I, when I moved here, which have both since closed last year. And I, I think across the board with any arena and these expat magazines, the biggest common theme in terms of why they may have gone the way they did was lack of, of innovation. They never pivoted. They had a core service offering that did really, really well when they started it and did well for many years, which then gives you the confidence that you're doing the right thing. Uh, but then things change. And in this case, especially for the print magazines, print, they, they had websites, but just kind of like on the side, they never focused on, on digital. Uh, and I understand, I mean, you can't take a print team and then just say, we're digital now and keep everybody and then nothing changes. It's a completely different uh, ballgame. It's more expensive, takes more time. It's way more specialized. So that, I think, was the downfall of both Asia Life and The Word, most likely. Uh, and then for any arena, yeah, just sticking to one service offering. I know they had banners and stuff, too. But um, for Saigonier, I mean, our media kit has like 
10 or 12 different products, everything from podcast sponsorship to business listings, to articles, to video. I mean, we do everything we possibly can and we're always adding more products. I'd say we add like one or two products a year to our media kit. Um, so that we're kind of always ahead of the game. And this also goes into product types as well. It's not just like I put another product on my media kit, check, you know, uh, you have to make sure that the, the product is right for the market at the time that it's happening. So for us, the, our big push was into content, um, that if you look from small coffee shops all the way up to like conglomerates here in Vietnam, the big challenge for them is creating content about themselves that sounds organic and editorial which is different. Nobody in this market does that in general. Everything's advertorial. You look at commercials, everything is, you know, drink Coke, push in your face a Coke bottle. That's more of the style. So the idea of doing like editorial style content for, for clients when we launched it was, took us six months to like, I think, get our first sale, our first contract for that. Over the last two years, the paradigm has shifted globally for, for this kind of content stuff. So uh, for this market, we were ahead of the game. Now the rest of the market is starting to catch up. I don't think people are still doing it in the editorial way we are. And potentially one other thing going back just slightly is if, if you're so focused on one particular group of people, so for any arena, you could say like nightlife folks, for with the word or age life, you could say expats. That limits you quite a bit, um, and especially on the expat side, any business that is run by an expat here or has a kind of like Western offering, they're only successful ultimately, usually, if they get the local audience. Local Vietnamese, look at Quantita, for example. It's American barbecue. Their places are 90% full of Vietnamese customers. Um, Pizza Four Peas, another really good one. Sure, they have a lot of international customers as well, but that's something that we wanted to focus on from the beginning. So from the first article we ever wrote on Saigoneer, the litmus test was, will somebody who grew up in Saigon, who's Vietnamese, find this kind of content new slash interesting slash, um, you know, something they haven't seen before? And so from, from de by default, no articles about how to get your driver's license, no articles about how to order the things like that. We always assumed a certain level of cultural fluency with our readers. Uh, also knowing that there were options if, if they didn't understand what, you know, the nuances of, of uh, Boomba Hoi or something like that, then they can go to these other more like expat-y, you know, you just got here, let me show you how to navigate Vietnam type magazines. Whereas for us, it, the second you go that direction, then Vietnamese will look at you and say like, all right, this isn't for me. I know what pho is. I know what Bumba Hoi is. Um, this is too, too Western or too expat too expat focused. So I think that's also been a key to our success is A, making sure we're going after the local readership, even though we only write in English and Korean currently. And then two, to have service offerings that are not only relevant and appropriate for the market currently, but also to get ahead of trends, you know, a year or so in advance. Uh, another good example of this is, is banner advertisement. Banners are one of the oldest digital advertising executions that exist, and a lot of people don't like them because they feel like people ignore them. We have this phrase like banner fatigue. And so we sell a lot of banners, and we want to sell a lot of banners because the, the, the overhead and like the just from a business perspective, they're, they make a lot of money for us. I found two main things. One, that people think banners are not giving them a service that is relevant for them. So most websites use ad networks for their monetization, for their banners. So if you're in Saigon, maybe you end up getting advertisements for Bangkok or for Manila, for a restaurant in Manila, because people are doing like regional ad buys. Not very relevant. So on Saigoneer, we don't do any ad network buys uh, or sell ad space to them. We work 100% direct with clients, which ultimately means that any advertisement on Saigoneer, banner ads, or any in general, will be for something that is relevant for you if you live in Saigon. It's a restaurant in Saigon, it's a service in Saigon, whatever it is. 
Um, so that was one of our, our tactics was just to make sure the advertising was relevant, that when people are on Psychoneer, they know that the banners are, are legit uh, and, and relevant to them. The second part is a lot of banners from an art, you know, typical strong visual, key visual and a call to action. That's like the banner, banner formula historically. And what we're trying to do now is we have a full-time illustrator on staff and we've just done our first one, which is to use a banner space to tell a story. So she put together like a 30 second video uh, for a water filtration company showing like the pathway of water for in Saigon from the reservoir to your drinking water and then showing how this water filter can help clean your water out. And for something as kind of benign as a, as a and technical as a water filter, we were able to put like a cool creative spin on it that tells a story. So using banner space as, as more of like a place to put like pre-roll or like things you see in front of videos usually, uh, but in a traditional banner area using illustration instead of, you know, just like corporate photography kind of style stuff. So is the actual deliverable that you publish on your website for that, is that a video file? From a technical standpoint, I think it's a, an MP4 file or something like that. Is it in a typical web banner yes. Uh, size? Yes. So it's not 16 by 9, probably. No, it's a square. It's 313 by 300 pixels. How much of your identity as a company is as a media outlet versus advertising agency? I think the two go hand in hand quite well. As I mentioned before, our, our core product is content. And we've spent a lot of time and put a lot of effort into creating the most objective editorial content in the market in Vietnamese or in English. And as a result, we've always had a very strong wall between editorial and partner content. So stuff that we work with brands and clients on. Most websites don't do that. So you'll have an editorial section within the editorial. You'll have articles about from, from clients and stuff like that. We never felt comfortable doing it. We, we found ways to give proper exposure to client content on the website, putting them on the homepage. We don't like sweep them under the rug, anything like that. But we've never sacrificed editorial quality in the name of ad dollars, no matter how desperate times have been, and there have been desperate times. We see ourselves as a company, as we, as we look at how things develop, and as I mentioned before, you have to keep innovating and reinventing yourself. You can't keep the same thing and expect it to work for forever. One thing we started to do more is work with clients as more of a creative agency, as we work with them on their storytelling. As I mentioned before, people aren't really, a lot of brands have trouble being objective about themselves, as do most people, I guess, too. Um, so that's where we kind of come in as an extremely trusted source. A lot of our clients read Saigoneer anyway, or read it before they approached us for advertising. So that was also a really good quality control that people weren't like, here, just throw this up on the website. It was, and then having to be like, hey, we don't do that. And like go through a long song and dance. A lot of people came to us initially because they liked that wall. They liked that there was editorial legitimacy and even the client content that we create every article or video that we do for for brands the goal is to make it as close to editorial as humanly possible or as as much as the brand allows us to um for bigger brands it's always a little bit harder for smaller brands they kind of just like here do your thing we've been pivoting towards being a content production agency for video and for written and photography kind of content um because also a lot of our clients ask you know we, we do an article with them they're like oh i need somebody to shoot my menu i need photos and then we're like oh we can do that too or hey i need somebody to do a, a quick video about something and we can do that um so that's, I think, definitely where we're, where we're headed. We're going to formalize that a bit more as time goes on. The other thing we noticed when making client content was uh, a lot of our clients wanted to use that content for their own internal marketing. So uh, that goes back to the kind of creative agency part is, you know, we saw that that was a need in the market as well. And if we're the providers and the purveyors of uh, some of the best content around, then it's to reason that we could provide more value to clients by allowing them to 
I guess, double dip when they pay us for client content. So, you know, if you have an article on Psygoneer, by all means, put that on your Facebook page. By all means, make it a blog post on your website. You know, use it as much as you want to the degree to the to the line of using it for another publisher. So if you're going to, if we make a video or an article for you, you can't just copy and paste it and put it on another website. That's a separate licensing agreement that we have to do. Uh, but up to that point, uh, we want people to to get as much value out of what we create as possible. What about in terms of the banner video? Mm. Is that something that could be run as an Instagram ad? For yeah, instance? in fact, the the only the one we've done so far is right after I gave it to the client. They're like, "This is awesome. Can I have the high res version?" And I didn't really ask them what they were going to use it for, but I, I had a pretty good idea. Um, and I, I think they're using it on Facebook. So um, that's good. That's a good sign. Happy for that. What gets you up in the morning? <laughs> My baby, because I wake up and she's already up and staring at me mostly. Because my wife and baby wake up a little bit earlier, thanks to my wife for letting me sleep later. Yeah, every morning is just I, I like kind of turn around and then I just see like a baby just looking at me. Or I get like grabbed from behind and I'm just like, what is happening? I just turn around and there she is with like a shit eating grin on her face. Like, ah, you're up. So uh, yeah, that's what gets me up physically in the morning. Uh, what gets me up mentally, which is probably more your question than the physical aspect. But there are a bunch of things. One is we're creating something of value on a day-to-day basis. Um, I guess it's, it's, it's more understanding and more knowledge uh, about Vietnam and, and the topics that we cover. So that provides value to society at large, in an, I guess in an abstract, but also in a pretty direct way. You feel good about what you're doing. That being said, my job description these days, like I mentioned, I don't get to write. I, I prefer to write. I would love to just be writing stuff and, and doing editorial things, but I, I've probably written three articles in the last year because my job is mainly a function of business development and investor relations and things. And just as a CEO, when things go wrong, fix them. And when things go wrong, it's not, you know, fixing things is never really fun. I guess it's satisfying when you fix it, but uh, inherently it's things you you would rather not be dealing with <laughs> probably most of the time. So on the business side, yeah, sure. Uh, the high of closing a deal, things like that, of, of seeing revenue numbers increase, uh, of, of, of our planned expansions internationally, um, kind of giving motivation for, you know, like a long-term picture. Uh, and that's something that's been different over the last few years, probably the last two years, year and a half. Uh, before we got the investment from 500 startups, we were still very much in like the what's going to happen tomorrow or the next week rather than what's going to happen the next month or the next year. Uh, so there was no planning for international expansion or anything at that point. Um, once we started to think more like that and did market research and saw that there was there was a play to be made, regarding doing something like Saigonier and other markets in Asia and maybe beyond potentially. What about the best from a lifestyle standpoint? Food, like Vietnamese food, although now there's no want for Western food. I mean, you can find anything here more or less. Maybe New York bagel is an issue, but outside of like really specialized food types, I think you can find pretty much everything here now. I know it's kind of trite, but yeah, I've had really good experience with on, on, on the whole with Vietnamese folks. Uh, my wife's Vietnamese, half of our staff are Vietnamese, um, and obviously I spend a lot of time with Vietnamese in general. My Half my family is Vietnamese. Even with my parents-in-law, like they don't speak English, I don't speak Vietnamese, but it's been a really good relationship. Ironically, when they moved into the house after the baby was born to help with childcare, and even though there's like not really much verbal communication, I mean, we can do basic stuff in Vietnamese. Like if they're saying, oh, don't forget to do the milk at 7.30 or something like that, no problem. Even just through like spending more time together in the same space, uh, we, our relationship has gotten better. And probably they see how I treat the baby and stuff. And they're like, oh, like Brian's really nice. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. But I think they like me. We'll see. What do you think, Chow?
um, architecture that exists still, like the building we're in was built in 1949 and still has a lot of original tile work on the floors and stuff like that. There's a lot of like this kind of style of modernist architecture, especially is a Vietnamese style. It's not from the French, it's Vietnamese architecture made by Vietnamese architects. Um, and it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world in the way that it exists here. And it's really special. Not a lot has talked about it. We've written numerous articles about it. There are some Facebook groups dedicated to it. Um, but still, I mean, Saigon, a lot of old buildings have been destroyed, but it still has enough left to still give off an essence of charm, I guess, though that is quickly fading because things are still getting destroyed really, really fast. One of the favorite segments on your website hmm. that I've enjoyed was the kind of Saigon then and now type stuff where you have a photo comparison of this yeah. street corner from such and such a year. And then here's how it looks this year. And you're doing those ones. Yeah. Here and there. Yeah. Not super frequently, but every now and then we do. I went back to San Francisco recently and it's maybe the first time I've been back in five years mm -hmm. and people they're they're like, Oh wow. Things must've changed a lot. And I'm like, well, yeah, there were some things that were different. However, I mean, uh, I can go away from Vietnam for two months and be disorientated when I come back. You know, I can drive down the street and be like, "What? Where? Where am I?" Because if nothing else, the facades of buildings have changed. If not, complete new high-rise developments. Yep. No union labor here, so you you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Some things, some some architecture moves super fast. Like there's some buildings that. You don't really notice anything. Um, the whole landmark area thing. It was like, oh, there's maybe something going to be happening in there. And then it's just... Yeah, that was crazy. We, we did a time lapse, actually. There was a guy who lived across the street from there or something. And he had taken a picture every day for like two years. Um, and then we helped him like stitch together and like correct the angles and stuff. And yeah, it was like a 30 second video. And like every frame was a day. Um, and I remember watching it because I live nearby. And like just going, like I have to pass that construction site to go to work and to go home every day. And yeah, I remember that was crazy. My brother, who's been to Vietnam now like 10 times and comes once or twice a year, sometimes even more. Um, every time he comes, he's just like, what? Like that skyscraper was not there. Right. His, his are more like six month time periods. Um, and so maybe he's like the shell of it was like under development when he was here the last time. And then all of a sudden it's done when he's back. And uh, he works in some kind of building related industry as well. So coming from New York where everything goes so slowly, um, coming here, he just like, yeah, like kind of flips out. How can this happen? And I don't know if the answer is good or not. But to, yeah. to, to that to that question of his, but I saw that time lapse. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, on Saigonier. Um, you can even splice it into this video. Yeah, maybe will. Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, check out the video that you just saw. Yep, it's on our YouTube channel. I've been staying in in Taldian, mm -hmm. which is also where I live, and it certainly seems to get worse every day <laughs> that's my there, there are a few ways to say that so you could be talking from like more white people perspective or a flooding perspective or oh actually i, I kind of feel the flooding's gotten better no you haven't been there on the right maybe you've been lucky yeah because i saw them putting all those big pipes in the i don't know if they're online yet but my experience is I've, I've taken cars home and like gotten to three or four points on the same journey on the same street and we're talking like over a kilometer maybe two kilometers of, of distance where like the car, the driver looks at me like kind of like I don't know if I'm gonna make it through, yeah. this, through this water. So that means like for a car, right? That it's just pretty high up. And then you have the high tide. So there was a time last year where it was like a three meter high tide. Plus it rained for like two hours downpoured. And it's one of those like you're driving. You're like I don't know if I'm gonna get home tonight. And I'm only like 
you know, like a 10 minute walk from my house. Did you ever kill, kill a motorbike? I have never killed a motorbike, but I have killed many pairs of shoes. Okay. Many. My engine have gotten flooded by sure. water before. I mean, I've just been lucky. It's not because I've been a good driver or anything. Uh -huh. It's just, I've just not had to deal with it. And I, I, I stopped driving a motorbike um, after driving one for six or seven years, about a year and a half ago or two years ago. And then I took grab bike for a long time. Then I got into a grab bike accident six months ago, which is the this wound here. This is that's recovering. Uh, that's a long story. I don't want to even rehash that. Um, but now I'm 100% cars, like grab cars or um, some various ride ride app um, or a taxi in the worst case scenario. It's longer to get places by car than motorbike, though. Overall, yes. But like I said, way in the beginning of this podcast, I choose my times by spending time with my daughter in the morning, going to work after rush hour. By coming home a little bit earlier to miss rush hour on the back end and spend time with my daughter on that side, I a eliminate rush hour traffic. So I usually it's not a big difference between a bike and a car in terms of time. And two, I avoid the surge pricing of the apps. Mm. So normally it'll cost me three to four dollars to get home in a car, which is like eight kilometers away, seven point five kilometers, uh, twenty five minute drive. And there are times where it's fifteen dollars. So acceptable on the low end, uh, I am not able to play in that higher end of triple the cost or quadruple the cost. Is this uh, from safety concerns or comfort? The car thing is safety. I mean, like this accident happened like four or five months after I had my baby. And then my f feedback from both sides of parents was like, he, you need to not take bikes anymore. Like he, you, you have other, your, your life is different. You know, you need to, you have a kid, so, you know, you need to watch out. And honestly, the, the price difference between a bike and a car over a month is around a hundred bucks, which is, a, you know, just an acceptable cost. The company helps pay for some of that. I pay a little bit out of pocket, but, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely paramount a safety issue rather than a convenience one. Although in the rainy season is both, I would say, because it's kind of impractical, especially if you wear decent, like I have a lot of meetings, so I have to dress fairly nice, not like suits or anything, but, you know, clothes that I don't want ruined particularly, uh, bikes are out of the question automatically because you're going to get soaked or but at least from your knee down, you're, you're done. And I've, I've bought on Amazon back home, you know, like tons of these, like, you know, plastic wrappers for your shoes and for your legs. They're totally impractical and I just don't use them anymore. So, but that's definitely one of the negatives is the rainy season because of the lack of flood prevention here. Um, which is one, a geographic thing, like you're just going to have flooding, but two is all the master plans for flooding in Saigon. There's like three of them that all deal with different things. One deals with like the current situation, one deals with climate change and one deals with something else. And I remember reading an article a few months ago saying that like one guy was saying that he was like, nobody talks to each other. Like these are all three individual plans that are all outdated and they're only effective if they're all like working together. So he painted a pretty nightmarish picture of the future of flood prevention in Saigon, which is unfortunate. And where I live, yeah, like I said before, in Daudian, yeah, there, there are days where my neighborhood is closer to a river than to land. And there are a lot of old houses in my neighborhood, not a lot, a few left from like pre-75. And you can see that they're, they're built like a meter and a half below street level, which means that over the last 30, 40, 50 years, they've just been like adding layers and layers of, of stuff, which... I guess short term or in some parts of that neighborhood that does work, but um, you can't stop the waters. I mean, ask New Orleans. Mm -hmm. you, I mean, the propensity of humans to, to, in their ability to, to believe that they can dominate nature has no bounds, which 
climate change you can look at, but even just on like from a water perspective, um, the idea that that humans are able to control rivers, you know, massive things like this. I wrote my thesis on on this idea about uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina and Mississippi River and how fundamentally a lot of the issues after Hurricane Katrina were attributed to the idea that you know, the Army Corps of Engineers and all of these you know planning uh, departments were like, oh yeah, we can control the Mississippi River. And which is like, you're screwed. It's a complete fallacy from that point. Um, and I, I can see some of that here um, and, and in a much less planned way too. So um, that is something that concerns me long-term for Saigon. It's just like sustainable development is not a thing here. Um, and some lip service is paid to it and here and there it is being done, but on the whole, it's not. So when you ask negatives, uh, one is, yeah, like future stuff, but that also plays in into water and air quality. Somebody who has a 10-month daughter, uh, a 10-month-old daughter, um, I do think a lot about what would it be like for her to grow up here from a health standpoint. Also knowing that a lot of young babies here are developing respiratory issues because of the air quality. Um, so for our house, I, we, we went in and just bought a $2,000 Swiss made air filter um that's used for like clean rooms and like medical surgical rooms and stuff like that uh so that's been one thing we've done to mitigate it uh but once you take the kid outside then you're back in the normal environment and you can't do much about it um and it's getting worse not better and similar for water quality as well um there's a lot of bad stuff in the water here and the filter the filtration processes are are, are not where they need to be so i guess yeah my biggest negative overall is just the the development of the city and of the country. And, um, I, you know, the similar concerns people express about China 10, 15 years ago, and well, currently do too. Um, and that has led me to push, you know, we talk about expanding as well to Taipei. Part of that is a personal thing that I happen to really like Taipei a lot. Just per, like I've been 10 times in the last three years after not going for the first five years I lived in Vietnam. And I can see there you know, they have parks and public transportation and bike sharing and, you know, like everything is green and pocket parks everywhere where a building is knocked down and the developer doesn't develop it. They put a park there instead, instead of a parking lot like we have here. Um, so I, I can see a much healthier environment for my my daughter. And it's not even going into like education and stuff like that, just from like a purely physical standpoint. Um, I'm, I'm being conscious of these things, I am proactively making moves to like not be here anymore. I mean, I'll, I will be here doing business and stuff. My wife's Vietnamese. We will be spending time here no matter what. But um, for the sake of my daughter uh, and my wife, we've, we've talked about, you know, transitioning to, to living in Taipei more full time than Saigon. Yeah. I guess I, I resonate with all, with everything that you've said. I think Saigon is an amazing place to be a young person. But the older I get, the more I'm like, you know, I don't really want to deal with traffic. Yeah, the novelty of driving your motorbike on the sidewalk down a one-way street the wrong way. Yeah, that yeah, it's totally fun. Like <laughs> the first few times, yeah, and, I remember you know, when you're when you're younger. But at, how old were you when you arrived in Saigon? Uh, probably like 32 or something. Right. I was 26, so I remember. Yeah, like let's have some fun. Yeah. I'm 40 now, yeah. so yeah, I'm not far off from you, buddy. Uh, I've, I've just found that the the driving my motorbike in the rush hour traffic to be immensely stressful. And this is why I said to take grab bike initially was because I would be in a good mood leaving somewhere. And by the time I arrived somewhere else, I'd be in a shitty mood. And I was like, what is the variable in this equation? And it <laughs> became pretty apparent pretty quickly that it was driving. And as a New Yorker, that didn't help either because we have a very, very, um, how do I say this? We're not very flexible people when it comes to to bullshit or traffic, which is inherently usually bullshit. 
So um, yeah, it's made me a happier person by by not driving a motorbike. And if if you're the passenger in a car, at least you have the air conditioning. Yeah, you can do work on your phone you can, or your laptop. You can do other things. You don't have to be worried about death. <laughs> yeah, or, as or much. even just watch the city go by. I mean, one thing I noticed after I stopped driving was I just started noticing a lot of like the same route that I've been doing for five years, and then by not driving a motorbike, being on the back of one or in a car, it was like oh, I didn't know what like all this stuff I never noticed all of a sudden started popping out because I was able to tilt my head completely to look down uh, down a street uh, and not crash. You know, stuff like that. I, I normally found that you notice more of a city the slower you go through it. Walking, so walking is the way is to go. The best way. Yeah, but Saigon. Okay, that's another negative. Um, outside of where our office is or the central business district, walking is not a particularly viable transportation type. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of especially weird in places like Taodian, which seem like they should be walkable. Yeah, but then there are trucks with dust passing by every second. And, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's not, it's no good. Yeah. What do you think the chances are that? I'm not going to say the whole city, mm. but that pockets of the city at least could have pretty cool development that makes them more walkable um, or less frustrating, even from a traffic standpoint. So metro, metro trains, that's 1A, uh, because metros go hand in hand with wa- like a, you know walking and, and subway or walking in metro. Is there a new a- ETA on, on that? Yeah, there is, but I don't know. It doesn't matter, right? Okay. Um, so I think it, I think now it's 2022 or something, or 2020. I don't even know, because it keeps changing so frequently that I don't even care anymore. Um, I have this running joke with my wife. My wife's parents live another, like, 20 minutes down the, down the highway uh, from where we live, away from the office. And her parents are like, oh, why do you pay for rent? Like, you could live with our, in our house and, and all of that. And in the beginning, I, I didn't like the idea, mainly because I didn't want to live with parents as an American. You know, you're kind of trained from a young age that, like, independence is an important thing. And, uh, you know, kind of living with your parents is a negative, not a positive generally in the U.S. But as I got, as I mentioned before, I've, I've gotten to know my parents-in-law a little bit better and establish a better relationship. I've actually, that doesn't even matter. They're not very judgmental or, you know, they're like pretty easygoing. So now the bigger issue for me is just that time on the bike or that time in the car. And there's math, right? The, the longer you spend on the road, especially if you go up the highway, there are more trucks than like the, the challenge, the chance of something bad happening traffic-wise is it goes higher. So I have this, but the subway, the metro line, the first one they're building here goes directly to their house, more or less. So the running joke with my wife has been, she probably doesn't know it's a joke, but uh, is we, I will definitely consider moving to your parents' house when they finish the metro. And I've been saying this for the last like 10 years. I didn't expect it to take this long. So on one hand, I guess it sucks that it's taking this long. On the other, it's saving me from having to move farther away from the city, <laughs> yeah. farther into the burbs. Um, but yeah, so so walkability, yeah, you need to have more public transportation. You need to have bike sharing programs. Um, they're putting more... Like pre- bicycle sharing. Bicycle, yeah, bicycle. Yeah. Um, they're putting more pedestrian streets into like downtown areas. Like Vivienne is a pedestrian street. Winway is a pedestrian street. Which like, Vivienne completely pedestrian. Uh, during certain, certain days of the week, certain times of the day. Okay. I think it, like at nighttime every day or something. Um, but they're pushing more towards that. They've been proposing bans on motorbikes completely. The government has... In Hanoi and Saigon, uh, no comment. I'll leave, I'll leave you guys to f- to figure out how you feel about that. But. I mean, I've always felt that you should ban cars before you ban motorbikes. Yes. So there you go. cars cause gridlock. Yep. Much more. Well, hey, I, mean, we, we, I remember when we moved here uh, to see a car, like a personal car, 
that was a non-taxi was like kind of rare uh, now. I mean, there's most streets are parking lots of cars. Did they did they lift the luxury tax on that? Um, the luxury tax still exists for non-Asian nations. So if you're buying a Benz or a Bentley or something like that, it's still the same. But if you're buying Toyotas from Thailand, and Toyota has massive manufacturing plants in Thailand and other Asian, so that's uh, what, like Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore, Brunei, a bunch of these countries regionally, uh, the tax went down to zero, I think, last year. Wow. And now everybody wants to become grab drivers. So they buy like the cheapest Hyundais or the cheapest Chevy or the cheapest Ford or Honda or whatever. And then the Kia Morning or the Kia Morning, the famous Kia Morning. And um, then they just become a grab driver. And that's how they make their money. So the problem is, yeah, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have the same idea and they all buy cars at the same time. And, and here we are. What's generally been the um, response to ride sharing from the established taxi drivers or taxi companies? Extremely negative. Taxi companies have gotten in some trouble for some of the tactics too. I, one of them, I think it was, I'm not going to mention the name, I don't remember exactly. They started putting stickers on their bumpers. So basically saying like, don't use ride share, right? You know, ride, ride hailing apps. But then they got disciplined by the government, you know, they're a government owned company saying like, you can't do that. Um, I think there've been some lawsuits as well um, from Vietnamese taxi firms against Companies like Grab, um, for what on what basis? I'm not. I don't, I don't remember the details. Um, but yeah, I think it's the same, the same paradigm that is has arose in all major urban markets with ride share. There's been a lot of coverage in New York about taxi drivers and how, um, like, they've lost ninety percent of them of their revenue in the last like three or four years. It's like insane. And like in New York, where you have medallions and you only have you have a finite amount, people were spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars on these up until a couple of years ago. And a lot of like lower income or um, impoverished, like kind of like, you know, Americans, but also like immigrants um, were really taken advantage of in that time period. And they put all their savings and took out loans against buying these medallions. And now they're worth nothing. And that's that was their one asset. They didn't buy a house, they bought a medallion. Um, it's not quite as extreme here, uh, but it's certainly the, the same trend is, is occurring where you have a lot of institutional pushback against these disruptors. But among the Vietnamese population, they're extremely popular. I mean, as a service, they're doing extremely well from a popularity standpoint. Obviously, from a revenue standpoint, they're going to be losing money for, for a long time. And that's their business model. So I guess it's fine. But um, yeah, it's, it's been very popular, especially with the smartphone penetration rate. I think it's something like 80% of Vietnamese have smartphones now. It's like crazy, crazy high. And I remember when, again, when I got here, uh, I had an iPhone and like people were kind of freaking out because smartphone, it was, well, it was like iPhone three or four. So it was before Samsung was making smartphones. It was like only iPhone. It was such a high priced luxury product and there weren't a lot here yet. Um, and now you see everybody from the CEO down to like the street cleaner uh, has a smartphone. So that's another reason probably that it's done well. There was a lot of uh, articles coming out of the state saying that uh, driving for Uber, mm. like you don't actually, once you calculate the devaluation of your car and the gas, that you're not really getting compensated fairly. Mm. Do you know if that's the, if that rings true in Vietnam also? I, I think there's the same thread is there. Um, I have 
I've tried to talk to some drivers here and try to get a better idea of like, what are their tactics and strategies? I mean, if so many people are doing it, it can't be bad. One is most drivers don't own their cars. So somebody else who has a bunch of money or capital buys a bunch of like a fleet of Kia mornings and then gets people, I don't know if they rent them to the driver. I, I don't know the economics of that. Some drivers do buy their own cars though as well. Um, I What I've seen is it's a hard business to be a driver in overall. Uh, some drivers I've seen strategically do things like they only accept rides within like a very specific area of the city, like of district one. So no ride is more than 10 minutes. And because of the way that the pricing works is, um, you know, there's like a minimum fee kind of thing. And then the farther, basically the farther you go, the cheaper it gets as the, as the rider. But for the driver, the farther you go, the less money they make on a like, you know, minute by minute standpoint. So some of the drivers I've met here are like, yeah, instead of, you know, taking two long rides in an hour, which nets me $10, I'll take seven shorter rides, which nets me 15 or $20. And so there are some strategic things you can do, I guess, not as a driver, I've never driven this, but uh, to, to make it work for you. Um, so I guess they're kind of gaming it a little bit. I don't think they do anything like actually illegal by any means, but um, they, they, there are those people who have a strategy. I was about to talk about some uh, like Uber or Grab, I guess it was Uber experience I had in the San Francisco Bay Area mm. last summer, but it's like not really relevant. I mean, I don't know enough about it to actually go into the details, but there was like something where if you don't do X number of rides, like... Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, like uh, you I got penalized for not... I think here it's the opposite. I think here they use incentive programs instead of penalizing programs, uh, penalization programs, I should say. From what I understand, and I, I might be totally off on this, but drivers get bonuses based on their output. So there's an incentive, and maybe that's why this happened, was because maybe I got this guy at the end of a 10-hour shift. Maybe dude was you know, taking something to keep him productive and was coming down from whatever that was, that stimulant, and dude fell asleep going 70 kilometers an hour on the Saigon Bridge. Well, wow. That's how that happened. That's pretty... F I mean, that's decently fast to be going on a yes. mo moped on the, across oh, the Saigon I, Bridge. I, I should... Everything was skin damage. Uh, here, 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 here a little bit. Um, not only did my laptop, like, cover my whole hip area, um, let's say there, there are a thousand ways that accident could have gone. 950 of them end up with me either dead or long-term paralyzed kind of situation. Another of the 50 remaining, probably 40 of them uh, are broken bones, you know, less worse version of paralyzation. Uh, I ended up with all superficial skin stuff. Um, I'm, I'm really lucky. Also, I mean, this happened because when, when I fell off the bike, on one side was the a very very you know three foot wide pedestrian no, two foot wide pedestrian path and then the railing and then the water. So if I hit the pedestrian the uh, if I hit the railing with my head, it's fine. Problems clearly with a grab helmet. And then otherwise over the railing into the water, obviously a problem. And then on the other side was the roadway. Nobody's stopping. So I somehow fell off the bike, flew off the bike, completely parallel with the pedestrian walkway. 10 degrees one way or the other, different story. So I, I, um, after my accident, I wasn't even really mad. I was more like just thankful to be alive and in good health. Sometimes you're in too much shock though. Yeah. You know, the anger can come later. 
Uh, there was some anger later on. Funnily enough, I posted a photo on my Facebook page, made a public of me in the clinic getting like, you know, wrapped up uh, with, with gauze and stuff. And I wrote something, you know, like grab, never again, da da da. And before I even had a chance to call grab when I got home, I got a call from grab saying like, hey, someone from our social team saw your post. We just want to see if everything's okay. So like good on them for customer service, I suppose. But then I was like, well, cool, but my laptop broke. And I'm all hurt and stuff. And they were like, oh, well, we'll cover your medical bills if you got a red invoice from the hospital. I have health insurance and it was a hundred bucks. Another good thing about living in Vietnam, healthcare is really, really cheap, even at like the top international clinics for the most part. I walked into an emergency room bleeding, got treated and walked out with a hundred dollar bill. And it was covered by my insurance. So, um, but for the laptop, they're like, yeah, no, nah, nothing we can do for that. Mm. Uh, so that, yeah, anger, some anger there. Luckily, my my laptop has over the last six months, like self-corrected itself. Every now and then I hear like a cracking noise and then like it's in better shape. I don't know. <laughs> Bye, Mac. Bye, Mac. <laughs> uh, yeah, mine has uh, damage on the corners from a motorbike accident. Also just past the Saigon Bridge. Uh, in that case, I was, I think, intentionally hit. I remember this story. I remember yeah. when this happened and they you you were getting robbed and they, they I th- tried to like knock kind of, you off your bike. Right? Yeah, yeah. I thought, I mean, I wasn't sure. In the end, the guy didn't stop. Hmm. I kind of ended up crashing in a very public area. Yeah. But something was happening, though, right? I mean, it was weird. Yeah, yeah. I remember that was like three, four years ago. I remember vividly when that happened. Yeah, too. that was probably one of the reasons I stopped driving my motorbike at some point too. Could be. I was, um, yeah, really timid for months mm-hmm. after that. I would get quite like every time I hear any motor behind me, I would be, you know, nervous. What's what's yep. going to happen? Even in the cars now that I take. I'm more, way more aware of like my surroundings. I mean, I feel safer by virtue of being in a car, but on four wheels. But uh, now that I've had this accident, I'm, I'm a benefit of the doubt kind of guy. So like up until the accident, I was like, ah, eh, this is just how it goes. Like you're, you're here. This is how, how it's done and just go with the flow. And that served me pretty well for the, until the accident happened where I did get some like in retrospect, like kind of spidey sense tingles where I was like, mm, something seems off with this driver, but you know, whatever. Um, but now, like, I'm like looking around, I'm like, oh man, like, this is really sketch. Our first conversation uh, at um, Kukakwan yeah, on, uh, okay. in Funke Bin was so lively. And I, I think way back then, I had the idea that, oh man, I wish I had recorded my conversation today at, at lunch. So it's it's fun that all these years later, and what, it's at least five years, if not more. Minimum five. You know, here we are, doing it for real. Pleasure. Thanks for taking the time out of your your day to sit down with us. And yeah, it was fun talking with Talk you. about Saigon and talk about the urbanist. So if you'd like to find out what's happening in Saigon, saigonier.com. If you're in Hanoi, urbanisthanoi.com. And if you're Korean... You just go to saigonier.com and you just uh, select the language toggle at the top. Okay. It's easy. You don't have to do like a slash easy KR or, or something. Or you could do kr.saigonier.com if you really want to go manual. Okay. Well, thanks, Brian. Great to see you. Pleasure. Thanks. Bye.